0: Welcome to The Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Harold has been immersed in the world of story shaping for over four decades. As the managing editor of the Los Angeles Times Magazine, and then Los Angeles Magazine, she worked with prize-winning writers and many others, helping to shape hundreds of human interest features, as well as coverage of the arts, sports, food, nature, and other topics. As a professor at the University of Southern California, she schooled several generations of journalism students in the arts of copy editing and line editing, as well as magazine writing. She's also a prize-winning writer in her own right, specializing in stories on travel, food, bird watching, and many of her other passions. She's currently working on a variety of freelance writing and editing assignments. Welcome to the Story Talks back, Anne. It's great to have you with us. And I wanted to start out by asking about your evolution as both an editor and a teacher. You've been editing uh, for many years, and you've been teaching both editing and later magazine writing. So how did your approach change over the years?
1: It was interesting to be able to specialize in magazine writing, which is the most of the forms of journalistic writing is the most challenging, but also the way in which you can tell the most complex story.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so it was a it was wonderful to be able to teach it and then the editing class had to evolve over time from pure copy editing to line editing and that was about 10 years in because it was becoming apparent as you point you make the point in our previous discussions that there's fewer and fewer editors you know that newspapers were sort of as they were constricting they were laying off editors and it was a combination of copy editors and line editors. So you sort of had to be your own best copy editor and your own best line editor too, which are two very different skill sets Mm -hmm. because you weren't necessarily going to get a good line editor. So the class had to quickly expand into line editing. So I reorganized it. So it, it spent X amount of time on copy editing. small amount of time on design which was becoming less and less important as things moved online anyway and then but design was fun and actually the students often wished they could have more of it because it was such a creative fun visceral visual thing and then um i had to really beef up the line editing part because they weren't getting any line editing so you can't improve as a writer unless somebody's giving you really great line edits and notes on your writing. And especially in magazines, it's, you can sort of get away with it in a, you know, typical sort of news story or a news feature. Once you get into long form writing, literary, what we call literary journalism. So magazine writing, it's so challenging to write well, because it's like writing a mini book like writing it's it it has to be organized properly it has to have a terrific voice it has to have good timing and pacing and it has to what I call um it has to take out the things that are going to stop the story cold in its tracks and and we used to call it in the business you know killing the babies You know, So you have these things that you're in love with that you want to tell in your story. It's material, or it may even be word choices. It may even be language that you just love that you came up with. But it's stopping the story in its tracks. And so you either have to be able to, you either have a line editor who sort of says, no, you've gone off into the woods here to your typical reader. You need to come out of the woods and get back onto the path. But you love the trip that you've taken into the woods. You you love it. You love the views. You love the butterflies you saw. You love the flowers, but you don't realize you now lost 90% of your. The people who are on the path of you are not going into the woods. So, you know, to be able to have an editor point that out to you is sort of critical, unless you can see it yourself. And it's interesting to look at the what I call the great writers it's what they don't put in you can see it sometimes and you think oh you know they were probably tempted to go into the woods right there and talk about this and they didn't they kept on the path and so they brought home the the story you know much more effectively than if they'd gone into the woods on this pretty little side trip that unfortunately is going to derail you. And also that magazine readers are different from book readers, you know, it's a different audience. They're committed to you, but they're committed to you to a point. A book reader is willing, is somebody who's sort of saying, I'm in this for the long haul. I'll even get through the bumpy bits. You know, like when you read The Goldfinch, there's moments where you're kind of going, oh, (laughs) Um, you, you know, her epic novel. And then you get to this magical part where you think, I'm so glad I stuck with this. And then, um, and it's the same thing in magazine writing too, but you're, you have an audience that's a little more inclined to kind of go, okay, now I'm done. I'm going to go and move on to the next story (laughs) because this is becoming um, tedious to me. Uh to keep up with everything that's going on all these side trips into the woods I don't want to go into the woods anymore I want to stay on this path Mm -hmm. and so it was really interesting expanding the class into line editing I and and getting them to think like line editors which is about content it's not just about did you put in the commas correctly it's what decisions are you making about content? What are the adjectives you're choosing? What does your story sound like? Is it musical? Is it, and what kind of music is it? Is it staccato? Is it something else? Adagio? Is it, you know, that's what, and they kind of got it. I mean, they, especially I think as they started reading for musicality, they started to hear writers voices
2: mm.
1: and writers voices are the most compelling gift that they have mm. Susan Orlean does not sound like Bill Finnegan does not sound like Adam Gopnik does not sound like you know you can go through the great magazine writers of our time and they all sound very different from me. John McPhee I mean You can pick up a John McPhee piece and go, oh, you don't even see you see the byline. You go, that's John McPhee. So, you know, that's. I think the thing that I wanted them to be able to attain. And it was hard because they also had to do some basic, just good writing and not ignore the grammar punctuation (laughs) and vocabulary. And, um, you know, move from that into some really sophisticated thinking in terms of the choices they were making structuring the story. So um, when,
0: you, when you were at college age, I mean, were you already going in the direction of writing and journalism?
1: You know, it's interesting because I look at some of my, you know, I was a writer from the very beginning and I don't remember it, but Paul Verkammen, whom you know, who's now a CNN reporter, and is famous for his storytelling. Um, he Charles Corralt was his hero, you know, who's the great storyteller of American broadcast journalism. And he says, you remember that you won that writing award, you were the best writer in the school. And he sends me a copy of it, this piece I'd written, and I'd completely forgotten about it. You know, it was like, but then I, later I found a little book that the nun had given me. Oh, Anne! congratulations for winning the writing award. And there was this lovely little book, darling little book, that I'd shoved into a drawer. And this was in cleaned. high school? No, this is in grade school. Oh, wow. This is in elementary school. And, you know, Paul and I went through the same Catholic schools. Uh-huh. So he remembered this. I had forgotten it. Then I get to high school and I think I'm quite the writer. You know, I'm very, because everyone's told me I'm very good. And my freshman English teacher, Mr. Walsh, gives me F, some of the first pieces that I write for his English class. F, F, language too purple. Okay, you're overdoing it. Too many adjectives, too many adverbs. Think about what you, you know. And it was such a shock. And, and, and yet it was galvanizing because it was like, I can do this. And, you know, I started to be careful about selecting my adverbs and adjectives, and I started to calm down my writing. It was less flowery and hyperbolic. And, and, and then I started getting A's. And I realized that the writing was getting better. And, and, and he was your
0: first copy editor.
1: He, yeah, my first line editing, too. When you think about it, he was sort of saying, you're making some bad choices. Mm. You think you're very impressive with your flowery language. You're not. You've gone into the woods and you're picking all the brightest flowers. And, you know, we're not impressed because we would like to look at the pretty leaf on the tree and study the pretty leaf on the tree. You're not letting us. You're throwing flowers at us. And I would often do that. You know, I speak in these kind of analogies or metaphors or whatever the correct word would be because, you know, I want it. Sometimes that allows students to kind of get an image in their head that seems real. It's not just talking about writing in a very technical way. It's talking about writing in a way that it's emotional. And I would use sports metaphors, Mm -hmm. you know, that would sometimes be a way to kind of, and I can see them kind of think they got it. You know, the sports metaphors worked. The in nature metaphors worked, the, you know, all these things were an emotional way of talking about writing, which allowed them to relax. It wasn't going to be something like physics that was so technically difficult. You know, if they didn't get the math, they were doomed. That wasn't what it was. It was about making some interesting choices in terms of how you write um and letting go of things and pushing yourself a little bit to improve you know don't go for the obvious adjective or adverb or don't go for the sentence structure that becomes repetitive and sort of monotonous you know and look at what other writers are doing and if another writer's really moving you what are they doing what is it the way that they're structuring the sentence is it the way that they present the information is that the tension they create and then the moment where they let you just sort of sit back and be quiet and then they put you back into a, you know, a bit of a, a, a of a, um, tumult. Um, so it's things like that and magazine writers can do that because it's long form. Mm. It's a mini book. And so you're challenged to create a mini book. um, and you can jump from the mini book into fiction. And you see that in some of the great writers, they would jump back and forth between magazines and and books.
2: Mm.
0: When you were starting to write, who were the writers that you admired? Who sort of pushed you in that direction?
1: Oh, it's interesting. You know, it was funny because you had a question about the first stories and the ones I might have heard that were, you know, cause there's a, ver- there's the verbal stories you hear and then there are the ones you read and right. the verb, the verbal ones always came from my mother
2: hmm.
1: because she was Swiss and she had a real interest also in history, not only family history, but just history in general. So, you know, I grew up in a community that's really rich in history, Montecito, California which had been home to an interesting mix of people um, from robber barons who moved out to the west coast for their health and built these gorgeous estates to you know some really thriving early latino communities primarily predominantly mexican and my mother was fascinated by them she was they called the first mexican settlement in Montecito. they called it spanish town but it was actually Mexicans who had been allowed to come and create their own little town in Montecito. They had their own bordello and their own store and their own hotel and their own graveyard and their own everything. It's still there. Hmm. And so, um, you know, so so you had this really diverse community. My mother understood all the history, but she was also interested in the history of our own family. And there was a, my great grandfather was 13 when he left Switzerland. Hmm. Crawled across the Panama Canal because there was no, crawled across Panama because there was no canal and made his way to San Francisco and worked his way down California until he ended up in North Santa Barbara County and worked his butt off and made enough money to buy land, you know, which is of course what you did hmm. um, and bought farmland here and farmland there and ranchland here and ranchland there um, and they struck oil on one of his little properties. It it turned out to be the Santa Maria oil fields. So then he was rich. And by that time, I think my grandfather was nine or 10. So he remembered California very fondly. So they go back to Switzerland, but he never forgot how much he liked California Hmm. and um, as a child. So I heard all these stories growing up of this really interesting sort of immigrant history and this early California history too. And so my traipses around Montecito, I'd often come back to my mother and say, well, what about this house? And she would tell me the history of this house, Hmm. which would be fascinating, whoever had built it and who the architect that was involved and maybe some famous landscape person had come in and done a fabulous little, you know, one of a kind succulent garden. I mean, people, the people who came to Montecito from the east were just blown away by what you could do in this California climate. I mean, just Mm -hmm. blown away. And that it could look like, you know, the parts of Europe, they love Spain and Italy, the Mediterranean. So they went nutty and built, you know, all these incredible Mediterranean style, you know, um, buildings, Mm -hmm. which, you know, makes it a, a beautiful place to be. So um, I heard that, and then I was reading stories, the two that really stuck with me, and one of them has just been remade as a movie, The Secret Garden, which is Frances Hodgson Burnett. Sure. And if you talk to most girls who, who read that, it, that book, def- you can literally find that book as having defined most young girls. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's still the case. But it was the and then another one called Sarah Crew, which was about a little a girl who's orphaned, she thinks. And she's sent to go live in this garret. And she's got this magic life. She was living in India when her parents died. So she ends up in this garret and she's got all these beautiful tapestries that she managed to bring from India. And she sort of decorates the room. And she's living in this little garret. And nobody wants her, nobody loves her, but she loves herself. And she just loves her memories of India and her parents. And then some strange rich uncle comes out of nowhere and sort of rescues her. And so it's the story of, and you know, The Secret Garden is the same story too. It's sort of abandoned children who find, you know, that they can have a life even when the adults are ignoring them. And Mm -hmm. in the case of The Secret Garden, it's each other in this magic garden in which they can make this beautiful life appear out of the earth. Um, And then in the case of Sarah it's that she never lost, she held on to her memories of these incredible parents and of India, the beauty of India. And then, you know, she's rescued, she somehow survives, you know, and, and she's, she's kind of in the end rescued by this you know, insanely rich uncle, and now she has the life of a princess um, that she always imagined she was, because, you know, she had to, or she would have, you know, died of depression. So, I remember those stories. So, they were about girls who were independent, confident little things, and that could also be great imagineers. Right. Right. And, um, and I thought I'm that was
0: the And a fan
1: lot fan of girls fan. have read those stories and kind of go, oh, yeah, that book, oh, that changed my life. So and then I think from there, you know, then I was plunged into everything. I mean, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and just was gobsmacked by, you know, mm-hmm. that book. Mm-hmm. And, and other books that made me politically aware at a very early age. I read Bury My Heart, A Wounded Knee. When I was 18, I couldn't stop crying. Mm-hmm. And, and now, when I kind of look at what people are getting upset about, you know, there's a lot of animosity being directed at um, Padre Sara right now in California, but I'm kind of like, uh, do you remember when you massacred the Sioux in, at Wounded Knee? Is anybody remembering that? <laughs> do you remember the Trail of Tears when the Cherokees were marched across the plains? and died and the Apaches who were wiped out. So, you know, if you read well and you read widely and you never stop, your world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And also I think, and I would try to encourage aspiring writers, you hear more and more voices. And you're also going to hear more and more stories that's, and you're gonna say, why did that stick with me? What was it about that? So they can, they inform you emotionally, but they can also inform you as a writer. Does that make sense? And then I want to bring up one other thing because it's a different kind of storytelling. And I was thinking about this a lot. One of the defining things for me, because I grew up in the 60s, you know, in a really tumultuous iconoclastic time, was the photojournalism that was going on at the time. Uh And what Life Magazine was doing and you would look at Life Magazine and your life changed forever. They did the series on the day in the life of a gun, you know, and they look, guns, they 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 chronicled the people that were killed across America in one day by guns. And I'll never forget it. It was like, early on, it was sort of like, we have to get rid of guns. I mean, look at this poor housewife in Wisconsin, you know, look at this, Poor little 12-year-old in Watts. Look at this. I mean, you literally looked across America and you just went, you know, guns are completely blind to who you are, you know, what you aspire to. They just kill. And then there was the week in, in Vietnam where they showed you the pictures of every man that was killed in Vietnam in a one-week
2: mm-hmm. period of time.
1: And again, it was the same thing you know, it just went across the spectrum from these poor 18 year olds from Newark to some guy who'd gone to Harvard, who'd been an officer, you know, who, it was just staggering. And then you saw the human toll. And then there was another, you know, just everything they did. In fact, there was a point where I thought about going back and getting a master's in history, because I think that Journalism is history in the making. It's writing about history as it happens. And so I went with that idea to the history department at USC and I said, you know, can I, well first I went to UCLA because it was cheaper. I went to UCLA and they said, oh no, you know, our history, we don't even want to hear your ideas. You commit yourself to us for two years and we tell you what you're going to study and you can't work and you can't, and I just went, uh, no okay, bye, and went to USC and talked to them. And they said, oh, and I told him the idea, and he went, oh, my God, that's amazing. And I said, I want to interview everyone who covered Vietnam, and I want to talk about how the coverage of the Vietnam War changed American foreign policy. Wow. And that would have included Jack. You know, Jack would have been in that mix. And he loved it. I mean, he was just like, "Oh, that's fabulous!" And I thought, "This is great. I don't even have to go through <laughs> old stuff. I can talk to people. I can talk to Neil Sheehan. I can talk to uh, everybody, you know, who is important in the coverage of the Vietnam War, and they can tell me. And then I can talk to politicians who are still living, and you know, about how what the, the impact of that ten-year war, um, and so." that was so exciting. I mean, I didn't end up doing it because the cost was intimidating. I mean, but, um,
0: they wound up doing it on their own. Remember they did that Vietnam reconsidered thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so at what point, you know, going back to, you know, sort of your formative years with writing, where was the point where you became more of an editor than a writer that you sort of, Made that
1: oh, so I, well, no, actually, it was more of an editor than a writer, so what I kind of realized as I was going through the journalism program at u s c was that I had a skill set that was very rare and marketable, which was hmm. I was an extremely good copy editor. I understood grammar punctuation, word usage better than any of my classmates, you know, and there's a reason for that, but we'll we'll circle back to that so um You know, I had this incredible skill set. That was very marketable. If I were a writer, reporter, I'd be competing with an incredible pool of talent. And I knew that. I was, I thought, I'm not, and I really thought I wasn't as good as those guys. It was like, I am really good at this grammar stuff. I'm better than people with 20 years experience and I'm 20 something. So it's my route because that's going to move me along more effectively and more securely than if I have to compete with this incredible pool of writers and reporters. There were some amazing people converging in LA at that time.
0: Do you think there was any kind of uh, sexism in that? Did you feel like you would have less of a chance as a writer?
1: No, it was more this East Coast bias. At that time, the LA Times was struggling. It was in the shadow of the New York Times. Which sort of dominated, you know, the what I would call the journalistic bragging circles.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so and there was a real you could sort of see in the hiring at the LA Times that the New York reporters would get favorable treatment. So anybody coming out of the big papers in the East, so out of the Boston, at that time the Boston Globe, out of the Washington Post. And remember, the Washington Post has just scored a coup with Watergate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, because that's the, you know, we're talking about the late 70s. So you've got all these people and the New York papers. And Newsday at that time was a very good paper. So even the Long Island paper was terrific. There were papers, you know, throughout the East that were well-regarded, Philadelphia Inquirer. So those guys would get the kind of, oh, we love you, come out and work for us kind of um, salutations from the editors at the LA Times. And as a Westerner, you were sort of looked down upon a little bit like, well, you haven't been, you know, in the great media markets. And then, the, you know, Otis changed all that because when he really turned all his great thinking and attention and money.
0: Otis champion. To-
1: Yeah, to building the L.A. Times into a paper as great as the New York Times. And he did that, you know, he did that by the time the L.A. Times was sold. And so these incredible people who were coming from all over the country. I mean, one of their great hires, Dan Neal, came out of South Carolina and it was working at some tiny, stupid, little nothing paper. But he had caught the attention of, um, oh, no, I'm going to blank on his name, Who the editor when Dean Beck Kay was the managing editor. Dean Beck Kay now being the editor of the New York Times. So he caught the attention of this gentleman who was a well-regarded editor out of Baltimore. He'd, he'd run the Baltimore Sun. And he was changing, you know, he was continuing this great change at the LA Times. He brings Dan Neal in. And for the first time ever, a car columnist, this guy wrote on cars he He was the but you would read his car columns, and he he had a cult following because you would learn about astronomy, you would learn about the economics of Brazil, you would learn about i mean Dan approached every car column as a possible chance to introduce you to some interesting thing that he knew you know that he was excited about, and he never knew what it was, mm-hmm. and so he was this incredible omnivorous mind with incredible writing talent and he could use cars as a window into 50 different subjects in a year. I mean, it was just, we would all kind of just, we were just, he now works for the wall street journal. So that, you know, that was sort of, you could sort of see that they got the talent could come from anywhere that it wasn't necessarily an East Coast right. It was, you know, they could find it in this tiny little town <laughs> in South Carolina. So um, it, was re- it was really exciting time. And that's when you sort of saw things m- moving. And there were some incredible people who were brought on as writers and reporters who came out of, again, nowhere. Um, you know, they just happened to be really good at what they did. And maybe they were working at a small paper in Idaho or Colorado or Montana or whatever, but they distinguished themselves for, so talent rather than pedigree became right. your, your calling card. But, you no. know, at that, at that point, I wasn't in their league, even then, you know, being a copy editor. Then when I got hired at the Sunday Magazine in 91, that's when everything then it was possible to be an editor, but also be a writer and be a line editor. So, so I could start to expand mm. you know, into other areas, because at a magazine, you had to sort of be a jack of all trades. You weren't just typecast as this, you had to, yeah.
0: And how did your approach to editing and working with writers change? over the years
1: you know working for magazines because magazines haven't really had to change you know they're not some of them are not what they were i mean i look at Vanity. i just got my latest vanity fair and i think to myself you know vanity fair used to be two inches thick and have some of the greatest writing in the universe. I mean, right. Jurgen, I actually used him in a class, in a magazine writing class. Jurgen Hilmer, who wrote The Perfect Storm, was embedded in Afghanistan for Vanity Fair, of all things. I mean, who puts a war, who writes, you know, take carries Vanity Fair was running a war correspondent out of Afghanistan. And that became the documentary Restrepo. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was just genius. Documentary about Afghanistan hmm. and the war there and the guys who were fighting there. It was amazing. And and I remember coming across it and making my class read it because it was just amazing writing. Um, and of all things in Vanity Fair, which was supposed to be high-end society coverage. And right. and, and yet you had this. so. You know, magazines were constantly surprising. Um, and even now, Wired is like my favorite, besides a New Yorker, or my favorite magazine, because
2: hmm. the,
1: you're going to read some of the best coverage of the earth sciences, the biological sciences, cultural con, you know, s- studies, research. It's in Wired, of all places. which mm-hmm. is supposed to be a tech magazine. So and even golf, I tell people this, I've read some of the best writing about cultural issues has been a golf digest of all things, because huh. they'll use profiles or pieces about how golf is changing as a way to tell a story about how our society is changing. And who to thunk, you know, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And that's, again, a sign of good editing and writing. That means somebody was thinking at Golf Magazine. Let's just not write about how to putt better. Let's write about the guy who came out of the swamps of Georgia, you know, and became the greatest, you know, young pro out of the South, um, and what his origin story is, and what he has to tell people about um, that you don't have to be part of the country club set to become a great golfer. Um, so I think that that's what a magazine, that's what I sort of got from magazines was, you can tell stories, not only in a really interesting number of ways, but the way you tell them and what you decide to write about can be surprisingly in original, creative, Innovative, so you know that was the exciting part. And I always urge people: just keep reading magazines, please, because that news feed that you've got on your computer is terrible. So, if you want to learn more about the world, do that.
0: So, in terms of um, your own work, I mean, you feel like your uh, your approach to working with authors was pretty much the same throughout the time that
2: you...
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because you get a variety, in any magazine, you get a variety of people who, you know, people who are the best at what they do. And I think I told you this story before, you know, I edited a number of Pulitzer Prize-winning long-form writers and considered some of the greatest literary journalists of their time. And, you know, I might change five commas and two semicolons and question one or two word choices and they acted like i had just saved them from perdition Mm. um and it was because they cared that much about literally every single piece of that bit of that story it's Mm. what made them great um and then there were other people where i had to rewrite them from top to bottom because i would try to sort of guide them into what they needed to do to elevate their stories. And after three rounds of not getting what I needed, I would just sit down and say, just give me the piece. And I would just rewrite it myself. And by then I usually had enough information because I had sent them back for this and more of this and re-interview somebody to get this. And sometimes it was interesting with writers, it was like, they would think that one interview was enough. And I'd say, no you sometimes you're going to go back two or three and i would tell the students this you're going to go back two or three times so leave the door open Mm. when you enter and i used to do this when i would interview people i would say you know i might be listening to transcript you know listen looking at the transcripts and listening to what we talked about and i may need to call you because i may have forgotten to do something is that all right Mm. and i left the door open because i wanted to be able to call back and sort of say can we talk some more because (laughs) A, a great interviewer has to completely put themselves out of the picture and ask the right questions and, you know, really listen to somebody's story and not think about yourself for one second um, and observe everything at the same time that you're asking them questions You're keeping them talking. Because I would say that the one thing about the student's that distressed me toward the end of my teaching was how little they observed mm. and obs- observation is so key to writing um, and every great novelist talks about this they'll be they'll be watching something or overhearing a conversation they'll be making notes secretly because they realize that what they are seeing or observing or the thought they're having about the way the light looks on that mirror at that particular moment of the day in that Parisian cafe is something they don't want to forget because they've had this moment of of I I know how I want to talk about this. I I know how I want to describe it. Uh So they'll write it down or they'll overhear a conversation they'll write it down or they'll have a thought and they'll write it down. You know they don't expect to remember it and they're willing to observe. And I would sometimes just be amazed. I, I kick stories back to writing students and just say, I have no sense of what this place looked like, what that person looked like, what their body language was like, what color were their eyes? I mean, you look at a good New Yorker piece and at some point there's that step back where you get the visual, you know, mm. you, 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 you see what that person looks like. You see what that room looks like. You see what so you're in the picture. Now you you have a visual. It, this is, I think, important, especially where the landscape plays a part in your understanding or your appreciation of the story that's being told. And students couldn't do it. They couldn't. They were like, I said, what are you looking at? <laughs> are you looking at your phone? Are you looking at your fingernails? Are you looking at them? Are you I, looking? I at Looking at the stuff in the room, I mean,
0: do you think that's the problem that they they spend a lot of time looking at their phones and so yeah. used to observing? Yeah. Or?
1: yeah, they stop observing the real world hmm. and I would say to all of them, observe the real world you, 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 it's never the same um, virtually. Um, it's really important to observe, and that's why I was sort of excited about the mindfulness craze. Of the late 90s, early aughts, because there was a moment where people were saying to each other, We need to stop being in our heads and we need to be more mindful. You know, Mm -hmm. we need to look at nature. We need to focus on one thing instead of 50 million things we're supposed to be doing. You know, and that was kind of exciting because it was like, I thought this mindfulness is good because it's important to have those moments where you stop and you truly observe something, especially as a writer, Hmm. it's not the static and turn off the static in your head and look and, and, and then try to describe it in, in your head. And I would do that. I think I told you this, I would walk around my neighborhood in Montecito and I would try to write what I was seeing in my head when I was a little kid. Hmm. Um, And I would pretend I was writing in the voice of this columnist for one of the women's magazines, Gladys Tabor. And she would write about, you know, just walking around her farm and what the vegetables were doing and what the cocker spaniel was doing and what the, and, and I would do the same thing. Walking around my yard or walking around my neighborhood or walking with my cocker spaniel down the street. And I would in my head, how would I write this? well if i were writing that column at good housekeeping or whatever women's magazine it was what would it sound like and i would write it in my in my head so that was my early attempts at it but then i did segue into editing because i had such a strong marketable skill set that it was unavoidable and then i got to return to writing you know, when I worked at magazines, because you you had to do a little bit of everything. And then as I, when I went to Los Angeles Magazine, by then, everybody who could write, write well, had to write, because we couldn't afford to, you know, hire the freelance writers who wanted $5 a word. I remember when I talked to Bill Finnegan about writing for us, and Bill went, well, you know what I get per word? And I just kind of went, oh, don't tell me. (laughs) Don't tell me, because I, I we can't afford you. I know it. I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry, I just can't come down. This <laughs> is Bill, um, just for people who don't know, grew up in um in LA and Hawaii. Right. So, um, and has wonderful he has wonderful origin story because he should never have been a great magazine journalist. Um, because he was a hardcore surfer. So he's in if I, I would say um Barbarian Days, which is his memoir of going from surfer to writer is one of the best things you can read. Right. I think. Have you read it?
0: Yeah, I have, actually. I love it. What do you think? Oh, so good.
1: Um. Oh, I said to Bill, when I interviewed him about the book, when it came out, I said, Bill, Bill, dude, nobody jumps from hardcore surfer to the New Yorker. He goes, I know. Can you believe it? (laughs) So it was really fun, you know, because he had that moment where he's like, right place, right time. You know, write everything because he was writing about for the New Yorker about he was teaching in South Africa because he was surfing in South Africa, and he was teaching in a township and they were there was an uprising, and because it was a black township and um you know he was writing for the New Yorker and they loved what he was doing and so they were like, can you do more and would you mind coming back to the United States and Funny. you know I, I literally went, dude, this just doesn't happen, and he goes, I know, <laughs> I know. Because there is sort of usually a product, and then to get to the digital, you know how is uh, how
0: is digital
1: storytelling changed what
0: we do? That was my next question.
1: yeah, the upside is everybody gets to write. The downside is everybody gets to write. Um, and I think you may know what I mean, so there's an awful lot of people who are abusing it you know with their own agendas and you can just look at the q phenomenon and just you know it's horrible and it's um so a lot of people anointed themselves as writers and experts and citizen journalists and they have no right they have no how do i put this business they have no business thank you They have no business doing it. They're terrible at it. You know, they're self-absorbed. They're small thinkers. They're liars, in some case. QAnon. Um, So, fake news. And um, I think that this is what worries me, because that's where you had... Before digital storytelling, there was a filter. Now, granted, it was a problematic filter. To get published, you had to go run a gauntlet. You had to pitch a good story, then you had to write a good story, or work with an editor to write a good story, and then you got it published in a newspaper or a magazine or some other publication, and, or and or you got a book published, and. You know, there's been a lot of talking now about, well, you know, now there needs to be more diversity in storytelling and book publishing. And, but when you think about it, books have always been, I mean, we've read some amazing things about cultures we know nothing about because of the books that were written and published by great human beings um, and great writers. Mm. and they deserve to be published. And I think there's an I- idea that there was a certain discrimination against telling certain cultural stories by the publishing houses, and I don't think that was necessarily the case. What I think happened, what I sort of saw happening in writing, was that you know, every publishing house was like any other business. It was looking for the big kill. It was looking for the blockbuster. So, you would, you know, they were always looking for those writers who were going to make them a zillion dollars, you know, the blockbuster type writers. And that subsidized the smaller voice, you know, the smaller audiences, um, the books that were more specialized in their audiences, although everybody should have read them. So, you know, that was sad because it was about the business of publishing. And that meant that, you know, they had to go for, it's a little bit like movie making, go for the blockbuster. Well, you don't tell the best stories in the blockbuster movies, often the ones that make money, but it's those smaller independent films that change your life, you know, or those smaller independent books
0: written by, you know, Isn't it also also a self-fulfilling prophecy? I mean, Sorry? Isn't it also a self-fulfilling prophecy that if nobody big ever gets behind, you know, a non-mainstream movie, that it's never gonna be big?
1: Well, that's the whole thing. So you've got some interesting, who's the guy that did Hunt for the Wilder People that did Jojo Rabbit, the, New Ze- the guy from New Zealand, and he acts in Jojo Rabbit? He's sort of, to me, that great story of somebody who's sort of saying, I can tell an idiosyncratic story. Now, Hunt for the Wilder People is a cult. You know, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen, but most people haven't seen it. Mm
2: -hmm. You know,
1: it had a quick in and out of the theaters, and we all told each other, you've got to see this movie. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's set in New Zealand, which is where he's from. And then he comes out with, but that movie did enough kind of, you could sort of see this, it had this incredible ripple effect because everybody was talking about it. And it ended up staying in the theaters a little longer, I think, than anybody expected and made more money than anybody expected. That gave him the purchase to be able to do Jojo Rabbit, which is genius. And, you know, he acts in it. He plays the Nazi, he plays Hitler Mm. in the movie. Why can't I remember his name? Um, cause I love him. It's a Maori name. Um, so, you know, you kind of think it can happen. It can happen. Um, but it takes incredible perseverance and confidence and all those things. And he's again, half Maori. So he's able to, now he's, he can tell that, he can tell that story because the Maoris are not exactly the most, you know, um, how would you put it, inclusive people in um, New Zealand. I mean, they're better off than the Aborigines in Australia, but so, you know, I kind of think it can happen. I think it has happened. It's kind of exciting when it does. I think this pandemic is going to, you know, cause us to do some resets. but I I couldn't even predict what it's going to mean for Hollywood. I kind of see what it means for newspapers. It's hard. Um, Magazines, it's hard. Mm. And um, I'm hopeful because there's been some great journalism that people, and people are moving toward it because they also sort of realize they want to be better informed about things, I think. Mm. But I'm not sure. That's my hope, Um, and that's where the great storytelling comes in, you know. And then, you know, again, let's never undercount books that come out of nowhere, like H is for Hawk, so Helen McDonald's book that became a bestseller and that's now becoming a movie. I mean, that was a book written. It should never have been a bestseller in a lot of weird ways. And it became a bestseller and it, 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 it set her up, you know. So now Helen MacDonald is a force of, uh, and she's got, I think a new book. Oh, she's got the book about the swifts. So now she has a new book coming out that's gonna be a bestseller. And it's about her obsession with these birds called swifts, which never stop flying. Uh-huh. And, you know, and again, the success of H is for Hawk, which again, should never have been a bestseller um, gave her that purchase to be able to write a book about, of all things, a a bird that never stops flying, that's (laughs) going to become a bestseller, you know, and she's, I mean, she's an amazing writer, but she almost, H is for Hawk about, is about how grief over the loss of her father almost killed her. Mm. Have you read it? Yeah. Oh, I anybody who loses a parent. I say, you have to read H is for Hawk. Mm. Um, and the and the grief, it's about how you survive that grief. Um, and I won't say anything more. And it'll make you want to read T.H. White's Once and Future King, if you've never read it. Because she references him repeatedly through the... And that's a brilliant book.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I recommend that one to everyone. I have a long list of writers that I recommend to people. And they're everything from... You know, Mark Halperin to Mario Vargas Llosa to, you know, um, oh, I love, you know, and I'm a big fan of John Irving, um, especially some of the early things. And I just, I'm a big fan of Tim Winton, who's Australia's number one writer. I'm reading one of his his latest book right now. So... Uh, And then The Overstory, which is Richard Powers, which won the Pulitzer a couple years ago, which is just uh, one of the most amazing books I've ever read. So that's, yeah, Um, a long, 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 long list. And I was a big Iris Murdoch fan for a long time. I was a huge Joyce Carol Oates fan for a long time. And then I sort of saw that I kept hearing the same voice. And sometimes you can almost have too much of one voice and then you kind of go, Mm -hmm. okay, now I'm going to move on to... Jane Smiley, Horse Heavens, one of the best, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, wow. Don DeLillo, White Noise, one of the best things ever written. The guy who just wrote about Churchill, who wrote Devil in, um, Devil in the White City. And I'm blanking on his name. But I'm interested to read his Churchill book. And I remember one of my friends sort of being dismissive and saying, well, hasn't everything that's to be written about Churchill been written? And I kind of went, well, apparently not. So, um, cause I'm hearing good things about this book. So what are, you, what
0: are you working on?
1: I was doing a lot of, so after I stopped working at the Mac, I was doing some food writing for a little bit. And I wrote for one of the websites that will not be named one of the more popular ones. And it was horrible. I was edited by millennials who introduced errors repeatedly in my stories. And so what I would have to do is, and I'd already told them, and I've won a James Beard Award for food writing, so I have some clout. And I said, you know, I get to see this story every time somebody touches it or you're not gonna get to publish it. I wrote actually three things for them, but one feature and then two guides. And I said, and the story about the, the feature kept coming back with errors introduced in it that were a combination of factual and language errors. And then I would make a list. I thought, well, I'm not gonna blow up and yell because then I'll sound like an okay boomer. So I will um, just send them a list. Okay, well, you can't say this because this, and you can't use this word because you've misused it because of this, and here's where you wouldn't use a semicolon, um, and here's where, and there would be a long list every time. And I would just send it back. Then the story would come back, and they were more PC, than I was. I mean, I remember they took out, well, we had a Hawaii expert look at it and she's decided that this Hawaiian said something offensive about Hawaiians. And I just went, "Uh, it's a Hawaiian talking about Hawaiians? Is he not allowed to say what he thinks about his people? (laughs) And so it was the weirdest experience ever. And after it, I said, I will never write for millennials ever again because it was just too hard to protect that story and then it was funny because the story went on, on up it went online late um, than then they said the original deadline and so it gets posted and Gary and I'm not paying attention Gary calls me and he says your byline the wrong byline is on your story <laughs> the editor had put her name on it mistakenly and so I, you know, right away, I emailed her and I said, uh, excuse me, you put your name as the byline?
0: That's a Freudian slip, right?
1: She went, oops. Oh, it was just a total Freudian slip. Uh, he, oops. And corrected it and put my name on it, which is the nice thing about digital. If you make a mistake, right. Right. you can go in and fix it. But this was huge. I mean, Gary went, uh, that's not your name on that story. <laughs> Are you working so- on
0: anything else now?
1: Pardon me? Oh, so I've been doing some travel writing for various magazines because travel writing is tough. It's harder than it looks. Um, it's really important to be able to not just say, go eat this, go try that. You know, you have to sort of write about it without sounding kind of lame and repetitive. So it's really important to be able to weave in. Some of the landscape, so either it's historic or it's nature. Like when I wrote about this beautiful Central California area called Los Osos, which has some of the most beautiful nature you'll ever see. I wrote about the nature that's in this area, and that was fun. And then I wrote a travel story about Los Alamos, which is a town that goes back to the 1800s. I mean, they've repurposed. It's an old stagecoach stop that they repurposed all these wealthy Angelinos who were abandoning careers as Sony executives and universal music executives and reinventing themselves as bakers were moving into this town and taking over these old buildings and turning them into bakeries and flatbread places and, you know, um, dim sum houses and, you know, seasonal, there's a, chef who just won best new chef from food and wine who cooked in new york at per se which is thomas keller's restaurant and she came back she moved to los alamos and opened a little restaurant she's just been named best new chef in this tiny little town in the middle of stagecoach land and it's literally a throwback you walk down this one street in this one town it's like you expect the gunslinger to come out with the pistols firing and they've got old gas station pumps that go back to the 1920s i mean it's just an incredible place you know a land that kind of time forgot which is unique for california hmm. and i did a huge cover story about them the food and wine scene there and boom that was in february and the pandemic hit oh, wow so they've they've done well they've managed to because they're They're, you know, these are experienced people. These are people who had big careers before they moved to this tiny little town. So they were able to think and pivot and reinvent themselves or figure out ways that they could work around the pandemic until they were allowed. Because, you know, we have the weather. We can eat outside most of the year. Right. So, um, you know, they were able to figure out how to do it um, by going outside. And yay. But it was... It was just so it's been hard to watch because I am a travel you know I've been writing a lot of travel stories the last couple of years to watch that industry just get shut down. I mean and yeah. and to miss that um, i I'm really miss traveling, hmm. and um, you know, I was lucky to be able to write about it. And I, oh, I went to Idaho and did a story in Boise, which is an amazing town, not what you would expect at all. And did a piece about that. So yeah, it was travel writing the last couple of years, which again is is a challenge, but fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to kind of know the, the, it's a specialized kind of writing and you do need to cover certain territory and I learned that because we did some good travel coverage at the, um, both the LA times magazine and Los Angeles magazine. We had good travel editors and writers. So, and food people. I learned a lot, you know, working, I worked for Savor magazine as a ghost editor for years, which a lot of people don't know because my name couldn't be on the masthead because the LA times would have fired me. So, you know, I did that and learned a lot about, you know that whole world of that magical world of great food writing gourmet magazine i mean that was writing about food but writing about something even bigger the culture and the emotions and the dedication and the vision and the right. you know the 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 family ties you know what food means to people mm-hmm. um around the world and and so watching this has been it's been hard to watch what happened to travel and to to food you know to restaurants to you know that that world it's been really really hard
0: thank you so much for talking to me Anne. i really appreciate it
1: thank you it's been so fun to talk about it i kind of leave you with this because i was thinking about why people need to tell their stories, you know, mm. and this has been fun because it's like everybody needs to tell their origin story. Um, and maybe they're going to tell it in a blog and they'll do it well, or maybe they're going to tell it. And, you know, Ed Cray, <laughs> our friend, right. Toward the end of his career at USC, he he had started a memoir writing, Program. He had, he had sort of laid out, and he'd done a lot of research about this. And he, of course, has written some incredible biographies. Is you right. know his, his right. book on Earl Warren is just the best thing that's ever been written on Earl Ward. And um, he had discovered that people really, really wanted to write memoirs. And he'd been working with I think maybe Iowa, maybe with mm. the maybe with the university or the writers' workshop there and they wanted to introduce a sort of memoir writing category to, and he was sort of trying to get SC to adopt this memoir writing sort of program. Cause they, you know, SC would have these international journalism programs and they would do these specialized programs depending on who would come up with a formidable idea. You know, let's do specialized writing on this. Right, there was right. a good specialized sports writing program for a while. And um, then, and I remember he was working on that, and he said people were desperate to tell their origin stories, and yet they needed help because you know you go in, in the woods you know, when you're right. telling your origin story sometimes. Right. So thank you if I've sometimes gone into the woods, but it was great to talk about something I care so much about. And um, I leave you with a you know, picture of Ed Prey sort of getting the importance of storytelling, of telling mm-hmm. your origin story. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of one of the last great things that he gave us. Well, I can't remember. thank you remember.
0: so much, Ann, okay?
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Have yeah. a good night, talk to you soon.
0: All right, appreciate it.
1: All right, bye.
0: Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoek, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to The Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.